Welcome to Seedheads, the cross-pollinating podcast where our Canadian seed heroes tell their stories, share their how-to tips, and talk about the seeds they love. I'm your host, Steph Benoit, coming to you from Ottawa, Ontario, on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Today, I had the joy of welcoming two esteemed guests onto the show, Telsing Andrews and Maxime Dufresne. Telsing Andrews is a grassroots seed grower and former owner of Asterlane Edibles. She joined us for this episode from Valencia, Spain, but can typically be found in the Ottawa Valley on the territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Maxime Dufresne is a plant breeding enthusiast and self-proclaimed Renaissance man who has spent his most recent growing seasons at Patchwork Farm. He joined us from his home in Saint-Justine, Quebec, on the territory of the Wabanaki Confederacy and the Huron-Wendat peoples. In this episode, we talked about the love for rare and perennial vegetables that Maxime and Telsing share, democratizing plant breeding, different selection lenses, dealing with failure, and passing the torch between multiple generations of seed growers. I hope you enjoy. I was hoping you could both uh, start by introducing yourselves and telling us a little bit about how your paths crossed in um, the seed world. Well, I'm Telsing, and I used to run a company called Aster Lane Edibles. It was a seed company, and I would grow all of the seeds that I sold. So that's not always the case with small local seed companies. They often grow in concert with other people or they they import in larger packages of seeds that they have trialed and know will work well in the area and split those into smaller packages. I did none of that. So I was a glutton for punishment is what I'm trying to say. So <laughs> everything that I sold, I grew and I selected. Um, and I mean, I always say that every every instance of seed saving is an instance of plant selection. Mm-hmm. It's just whether or not you have intention there. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, Maxine and I crossed paths, oh gosh, um, at some point in the seed collector's world, maybe in regards, we were talking about this, maybe in regards to beach breeding, but Mac, uh, Maxine, maybe you could clarify that for me. I think uh, we've met through uh, Mauve, which is another plant enthusiastic uh-huh. Uh, rarities and oddities, a seed saver and collector, which is more like uh, my background. So I had the chance to uh, work in the rooftops of Montreal after my uh, graduation as an horticulturist. And uh, then I uh, worked with Chef closely and they really it was the, the biggest kitchen of North America there. It's totally huge. So So I couldn't never like fulfill uh, (laughs) a single meal for them. So what I was doing is trying to find stuff that they couldn't buy on the shelves um, and work it for small groups. So because I always had the interest of rare plants and perennials and ornamentals uh, that's edible because the garden was also like a showcase garden. So um, working in those... um, in those uh, fields that are like less traveled, let's say, <laughs> I found somehow uh, uh, another enthusiast in my region, and somehow they like pointed me to Telsing. They said, "Well, I guess you're into beets, you're into perennials." And then we went to um, 
the the OSA in Oregon uh, together with yeah. where we actually got to meet and spend time and uh, get to know each other and that's 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 how I uh, I met Telsing and then we're like well we're a little bit too much alike and uh, <laughs> so I <laughs> so uh, I learned a lot from Telsing I still have a lot to learn from him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I'm remembering now. So uh, that that was over probably something like Oka breeding and selection in the north, uh, which brings okay. us to one of my favorite topics of tubers. But uh, I'm pretty sure <laughs> that Mauve would have been growing Oka and other rare Andean crops, which connects to another plant breeder in the states, William Whitson, who's been who who's a tuber enthusiast and he's been trying to catalog all the um, unusual potato species that are found in various catalogs and but he also selects for um, unusual tubers which currently don't grow well under daylight um, hmm. hours that we have around here so that they're tuberizing far too late in the season and uh -oh. I think Mo got a hold of some of the material for that and me as well and maybe it was was it over Oka? Oh, I think I think it was over tubers because I think it would have been right. to do growing out true seeds. So just as a mm -hmm. a note, we're talking um, almost exclusively about growing out things from true seed mm -hmm. when it comes from talking about international trade, uh, true seed of um, tuber plants. So unlike propagating a plant from a vegetative part such as the potato we would be growing it from the seed that came from the flower of the plant. So that's an important distinction. Mm -hmm. That's a little, yeah, absolutely. A little more complicated. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a, big, uh, it's a big project going forward, let's say, with Oka. So I had the chance to order some uh, Oka seeds from a cultivariable uh, a few years back, and the germination rate is very low. And then you need a few seasons just to evaluate if it's going to be something interesting working with or not. So for any yeah. amount of like work that's going to be, uh, I want to say profitable, it's not the word I'm looking for, meaningful, uh, it's going to take a few years of your life. And it's the time of a, um, kind of time I have to make something that's going to be worthwhile and that's going to be uh, shared with other enthusiasts. Mm. It's definitely a patience game. Well, Oka's an interesting one just to when you were talking about chefs because it is kind of like a potato, but it has a lemony flavor. And uh, if you're interested in rare plants, um, then that's definitely one that pops up quite a few times, especially because you could see it as an analog for nightshade potatoes in the sense that originally nightshade potatoes um, would not have had the right kind of day length tuberization that we would need here, or maybe not the dormancy to hold from season to season, or potentially alkaloid or other sort of issues with um, them as food crops. And so Oka has slightly different um, uh, criteria you have to look for, but it's a super beautiful plant. It uh, comes in all kinds of colors like crimson and gold and rose. And so it's really pretty. And it's an attractive plant as well. But um, just drawing uh, back to what Maxime was saying about sort of patience and and high mm -hmm. chance of uh, a failure with this crop. <laughs> yeah. 
it's really hard to grow. And I think one of the things that Maxime and I share in common is a willingness to keep trying. In terms of like germination rates of oka seedlings, I don't know, perhaps I see plants as puzzles, but uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah, they don't have super high germination rates. Like one of the great things about cultivariable, which is William Whitson, just to be clear, is uh, that he is producing decent crosses. So the material that you're starting with is is good. And he, know, he knows where you're from. I don't know if he's selling any more to Canada, but if he knows where you're from, he would have provided you with genetic material that he thinks would potentially be able to work for your area or has some some chance. I, I think Mauve actually managed to produce something with a shorter tuberation, like tuberization um, period. And uh, it, it worked pretty well for her. And it went back to uh, William Whitson um in order to be able to continue to work on that plant so that was kind of fun and interesting um but yeah the germination rate for oka seeds are tricky because you had to soak them they're also incredibly small seeds so they have to have good soil contact but Mm -hmm. i love i love these kind of mysteries i love trying to work with plants that are um really difficult because they're uh, obligate outbreeders or they need large populations or they're impossible mm-hmm. to overwinter in Ottawa. If you say that a plant has many of these characteristics or they're like kind of wild, but they have some interesting quality that you want to sort from all the wild, I'll be like, yes, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> well, that's it. It's kind of like a dare. It's like uh, everyone on the internet said, well, you can't do that. Well, like... Yeah. Challenge is is accepted. Looking forward <laughs> the failure of this project, but maybe once in a thousand I will prove you wrong, and that's the kind of like hard edited. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say, and if you get any taste of success at all, that's like the end. That's the end of you, because uh, I like I managed yeah. when I first heard about growing uh, sweet potatoes just in the quote unquote north, and by the north I mean that strip of Canada along the border. I was <laughs> like, uh, um, okay, cool. I want to totally grow sweet potatoes. Um, but then when I found out that there was only a certain variety, or they're really hard to breed, etc., I just went for it and produced things which I had never seen before, never tasted before techniques that I had learned and the plants are fascinating to work with um and so that really spurred me forward to continue to work with sweet potato um selection in Ottawa nice and you you had super amazing results on those because sometimes you kind of like work for years and years and you have nothing to show up (laughs) like the oka I mean even (laughs) more she managed to uh select an oka that's very like flowering a lot and that's close to it's less than very long day tuberizer but it's just never flower like it never sets seeds because she lives such in a mountainy region it's so uh so cold i mean it's so cold early so yeah unfortunately we cannot get seeds from a cultivarable anymore in canada but, uh, you know, I'd really be looking forward to uh, start back this kind of project like if we do get some good material like that. Because let's say for us, uh, there's no chance we can amount to any good results from the stock we have in Canada compared to what Bill Whitson has in the Pacific Northwest. Because there's such a huge collection that is so widely genetically variable 
and uh, <laughs> it is an awesome selector. So, like, if we try to um, achieve any kind of success here, uh, it would take us so many time to just like work on his past successes. So basically, we're just well, like custodians of of the work of people before us, and that's yeah. for me the essence of reading is just respecting. Uh, those who came and just continuing their work uh, and going some other directions too. Yeah, well, no, absolutely. It's it's uh it's this sort of broad thinking about time, eh? That which was before, mm. that which is now, and that which will be in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say though that by saying that stuff with Oka, you just recognize that you're challenging me again. <laughs> I suspect there are people on in our uh, Pacific Northwest that still have reasonably good um, Oka collections. One of the thing, and and of course there are techniques or tips and tricks to play with um, plants in such a way that you can induce flowering. And it's tricky though. Uh, sweet potato. What really surprised me about sweet potato was that uh, that once you went past the Varieties that were just sort of common, more commercial varieties, which had, I don't know if they had the flowering tendency bred out of them, or it was just the replication sort of after various um, sort of so many cloning events of sort of propagating those sweet potatoes, the flowering, there was some kind of degradation in the capacity to flower. But once I started producing, once I had a few varieties, which were a little bit more wild, and I got some seed from a couple people, sweet, uh, sweet potatoes. So this is, again, is the true seed from flower that my population was, I would say, prolifically flowering. And that gave me uh, lots of genetic material to work with. So I think even just from talking to you both for a few minutes, it's uh, like clear that you do a lot of collaborating with other plant breeders. And it seems that you have a an interest in the democratization of seed and breeding populations and uh, yeah, an interest for sharing and collaborating with other farmers. So I guess um, what I'm curious about is why does this feel important um, to you both and how has it informed your work? And maybe Maxime, you can you can start. So, well, I guess we're just like a little grain of sand in this universe. So, like, I get to, I, I enjoy the, the concept of uh, leaving something that's gonna be like positive behind. So, and like for me, plants is the most precious, uh, element of like human life because it <laughs> keeps us living. And sometimes we kind of like forget to. That we have to eat to live, and uh, and it's just the 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 also the just the joy of like cooking and eating, is mm-hmm. is because I'm a like I enjoy that a lot. So it's all, uh, it all matches down uh, to uh, curiosity and being custodians. I, I was saying so, yeah, absolutely, uh, Stephanie, you really uh, put it out. Our like in a very good. Mm-hmm. fashion because what i usually do is i test weird plants that are super hard to get and i grow them a few seasons and if they set seeds and the the the, the plant is tasty and it looks good and uh, there's potential for it then i just keep the i get the seeds and i just give it 
to some seed producer because I think that job is because I I've done that like packaging and cleaning seeds and going to see the festivals and selling that on the little booth and all that but I found that job very difficult and and time consuming and it's super rewarding but it's still like a lot of job for mm-hmm. someone who has a full-time job on top of that mm-hmm. so I found it way easier to just like say hey here like you never heard of that plant here's the seed grow it out try it out see if you're customers like it and uh, just thank me later you know <laughs> uh, or, or not or not basically so it's just the, for the fun of it and then it just like creates uh links with the uh, people who receive like that you don't do it for uh money or for uh or for other motives just like for pure uh fun and curiosity and uh, getting to know more people and know more plants and get to learn about breeding because it's hard to learn and it's uh, it's all it's a little empirical too if you're not like if you don't have some kind of background though you don't do much research so when you learn someone who's like that in more than you like Kelsen does it's super fun to just ask questions and see like where would you go with that uh, that type of crop or that or like going towards direction to select some kind of traits or uh, how do you cook different plants or you know Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's yeah it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'm really interested in the democratization of uh, plant breeding because I feel like it's something that's in reality always existed. Like we've always interacted mm-hmm. with plants, and our interaction with them and their interaction with us has sort of formed um, you know an, a natural ecological symbiosis. Um, and people are. I don't know, perhaps they've forgotten a little bit or they're a little bit afraid when it's couched in all these scientific terms and when they think when they think about um, what must have gone into the work of something, some kind of crop-stable, harvest-ready tomato or whatever. But uh, if you take it back to just the joy of, say, taking some seeds off of a flower because you thought it was pretty and then putting it in your garden, then it becomes much more friendly and much more intuitive. And I mean, I have no formal training whatsoever in plant breeding, and I managed to produce um, at a, you know, really tasty, interesting, reliable varieties that were resilient for my family and community and environment. And since I started working with plants, and I my business has gone through a couple or had gone through a couple of incarnations, including initially I started doing edible landscaping, which is why mm-hmm. I became interested in perennials because I would be, be designing full yards for people and they'd say, I want to eat as much of this as possible. And uh, so I did loads of research and stuff like that and sort of collected all kinds of things so that I could realize these dreams of people. And then what I encountered was the fact that I couldn't source anything except for from my own garden, which is why I ended Mm. up moving towards um, a seed company. And also towards when the more and more I learned about food and and, uh, things like that, it just made sense to start doing more and more selection and moving sort of across a full spectrum of different types of food plants from what I call calorie crops. So the 
sort of meat and potatoes, literally potatoes, of uh, <laughs> crops, right up to, you know, your vitamins and minerals. So the more um, salady greens and things like that. But from the beginning, I think because of the way I entered it, and I think a lot of people who are interested in seeds enter this way through the sharing um, community is that uh, I, it was weird for me initially to even sell seeds because I was so used to giving them away. Mm. And I was so used to sort of like babbling on and on about my favorite vegetable varieties or whatever. <laughs> I was just wanted everyone to be, you know, potentially as excited as <laughs> I was about this stuff. And I, people used to be often quite like worried or hesitant. They're like, I don't know. I tried this thing sometime and the squirrel ate it or whatever. And like, try again. Trust me. It'll, it, it might work. It'll be fun. And, uh, and, that sort of like teaching and sharing about seed saving really worked quite naturally into plant breeding such to the point where I produced a variety and I can't really say I, but it's like we, <laughs> the people that were involved, produce a variety of butternut squash, which ended up being called one penny butternut squash. The original mm-hmm. name was not anywhere near a short. It, oh gosh, what was it? It was the, um, it was the Kukurubita Machada Eastern Ontario Participatory Breeding Butternut Land Race or something like that. It was really long. It was one of these yeah. titles. That It'd be hard to put on a package. <laughs> hard to fit on a yeah, package. I think I used to like label it, and it was, and and I I would joke about it every time I did a talk or something, and then I. I had started recording who was getting these seeds because the project essentially was because. Uh, People typically grow not too many varieties of butternut in eastern Ontario, western Quebec. Um, was that they would just grow, I, I would send out seeds, they would grow them, they'd send me them back if they worked. I would mix them in a big bowl um, after I made sure, you know, they'd seem clean and that kind of thing. And I would mix them over a couple of years and then I'd redistribute them for free. So this was just, you know, a free project where people would be doing this. And I was just curious to see what would happen. And I would record these instances of giving out this seed as one with, with just one penny. And I wouldn't actually charge them the penny. And so it ended up being called One Penny Squash because of that. Oh, and it was, very cool. Yeah, it was fun. And I would explain that, like, in this way, you know, I would give, like, some very limited instructions. Um, and I would... And we, help them think about things like, you know, the different species of squash that grow in the garden because Kakura Vitamashata is one of three typical ones that people grow, including Maxima and Pepo. Um, and that they don't typically cross, though there are um all kinds of exciting exceptions to that. Uh, nature is always exciting about breaking uh, the rules that we set out for them. Um and uh, it would also say that you can not only do seed saving, but also selection. And that, as just to repeat myself, that every instance of seed saving is an instance of plant selection. Um, and they, it worked really well. It, it, I, when I tell people this, I often wonder if they think, oh, my gosh, what kind of monstrosity did you get back? <laughs> but I didn't get a monstrosity. I got like a generally shelf-stable storage squash. So you could just keep it on the shelf because most people store their squash that way. Um, that grew medium sized and was roughly butternut shaped and had tasty flesh and grew well in the geographical area that it was designed for. That's it. That's, that was the big surprise, right? <laughs> exactly. A monster. The intention. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it, 
excellent. So, and that was just, you know, regular gardeners at different scales doing that. Yeah. Did you have to rename once the penny went uh, out of fashion? No, and then it's cute. <laughs> <laughs> the oh, one nickel. Yeah, um, yeah, one nickel squash. That's such a great story, Tulsing. I forgot all about that squash. I've never tried it myself. I still have um, seed. <laughs> really? Oh, that's interesting. Now I have plenty of space now that I have a new land. And uh, also, like uh, Telsing, Stephanie, she did an awesome project on cabbage. Mm. And um, yeah, I got like thousands of those seeds in my refrigerator at the moment. Very and now I have a. Yes, yes, I was like very lucky to have those. And now that I have a good amount of space, I really want to try to. Um, start back or let's say continue on where uh, that that project uh, i guess stop did this stop telsing or people uh, other people well, are keeping me going on the tracks so. here's the thing <laughs> so i just to to link back to actually it's both us both the squash and the cabbage i know various of my projects have been taken up by other seed companies um the one penny squash was grown out for a while by bird and bee um, in Ottawa, though that seed company, I think, has closed doors. And they were also attempting to grow the, the cabbage. The cabbage is a bit tricky because it requires some um, thoughtful overwintering techniques that uh, aren't always uh, easy if you have, like, a lot of different plant material that you're um, trying to uh, trying to keep going. So I, I'm not sure about this, the cabbage, though. Gosh darn it, should that cabbage uh, project keep going? Uh, it's... It was it was one of these serendipitous things with uh, me in my very 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 early days of growing up seed and a couple of cabbage plants that managed to survive. One was a savoy, just a green savoy with a little bit of blush in the center, and the other one was a red rock mammoth. And the seed original seed source of that came from Cottage Gardener, another seed company that no longer exists. Mm. Uh, and uh, both of them. The genetics of both these varieties were sufficiently restricted that when my single, it was a San Michel Savoy, um, uh, produced flowers and the red rock mammoths around it pollinated it, it happened to be a one-way pollinator. The all the F1, um, so that's the first generation of the plants, were perfectly uniform. Boom, 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 boom. They look like a classic hybrid, and I took and but beautiful. So they were. The what this coloration of this particular cabbage looks like is it's um it's got sort of a purple veining with sort of a greenish lilac-y um in between. So it's like a multicolored cabbage and it's sort of midway between um savoy and sort of red cabbage in texture. The taste is sort of like a lovely nutty um cabbage, which tastes great in salad, it's really good cook. It has a sm relatively small footprint for a cabbage plant, which is useful compared to its head size, which is relatively large for that footprint. And so I kept working with it, but the first couple of years was just ab just absolute failure with the original seed that I got. Um, starting with me, I just say that one San Michel plant that had those flowers, which I knew most likely from the literature would have been cross, um, was uh, snapped almost in half by some passerby. <laughs> oh my gosh. But it, it's okay, it survived. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I learned a lot of different techniques about how to uh, propagate cabbage and also overwinter it in a very low tech, I'm very low tech, by the way, 
I mm. never owned a tractor. It was hard work. But um, uh, very low-tech ways of overwintering this cabbage, uh, but also doing wacky things. Like I learned that cabbage root cuttings, similar to sea kale, which is a like distantly related um, perennial relative, can grow vegetative, like grow leaves from root cuttings. I'm still experimenting with that. The side heads off a of cabbage can be rooted, brought indoors after fall, and induced to flower. They just do it naturally. And you can cross them and get seeds, a very small amount, um, like compared to then, you know, replanting them outside, blah, blah, blah. But there's so many exciting things to discover when something is really, really hard to do. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I love that you, uh, you see that as this, like, great challenge instead of something that discourages you. And I guess on that note, kind of working with these very rare and sometimes um, hard to grow, hard to find populations um, and taking on so many diverse projects, you've both had to deal with failure, if you want to call it that, um, in its different forms. I think when I talked to Maxime earlier, he called himself the master of failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so so how do you both uh, deal with that? Maybe, Maxime, you can start us here. Yeah, I'll go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, numbers game. So I always say like one in a million is going to cut it and then you get it. So you have to be lucky. So when you fail, it's just an opportunity to have learned something to me more than like discouragement. It's like, well, I'm started back like on some other, like I learned something, I'll try it the other way or I'll. And sometimes it's always not in our control. So let's say for just for Oka, basically I've like, <laughs> I've, mm-hmm. I've let myself in a little discouraged, but I'd start again any day with good material. It's just that you have to realize sometimes that your project is like, even though you spend a few years on it, it's not going, no, it's not going the direction you want to go. So then you have to like pick, there's so many others. So there's like one less project. Is not the end of the world. So you focus more on those that are going forwards than those that are going backwards, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes you just get really lucky. Uh, like Telsing's uh, leek, which uh, is one of my favorite crop I grow in the in western uh, part of Montreal. And uh, it just recedes itself, and then I get to do more selection, and then... Mm-hmm. Uh, with my onion collections, I, I let nature basically do the job and point me in the direction. And if I'm lucky and if I also observe enough, because it's just, it's up to me to figure out what nature, uh, is, is doing the work. So if I see something, I could have like just walked past by it and not recognize it. So it's all on me to see and to recognize and to work and to have the timing. But sometimes it's just like a gopher problem or bulls. <laughs> and then it, they just ate all your project. And then you're like, wow, that, that was not expected. But uh, it's always fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I don't know if you speak often with Owen in the UK, but he was doing a public participatory breeding project of Oka there, which it, that climate is much more encouraging for Oka. Uh, and uh, I think his biggest reasons for 
participants failing was things like beer and bowls. <laughs> so a lot of Oka flavored bowls out, out there. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, gosh, I so agree with Maxime about being, you know, gracious with failure. It's just, it always happens. I, it's like you're inevitably, I mean, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, you wouldn't really be moving in any direction if everything always worked. I think that there'd just be too much. So it's <laughs> nice Very that, uh, <laughs> it's nice that, um, with the sort of, uh, constraints and, uh, and difficulties give you a path forward. I always mm. see it that way. Um, yeah. and, I have to tell you, if it were easy for me to do half the things that I attempted to do, I would have learned so much less, like mm. um, with uh, carrots and uh, oh, a lot of the perennials. Uh, it just it wouldn't have even occurred to me. And one of the things that you always want to avoid, I think, um, in learning anything and, and researching or trying anything is this sort of um sta- stasis thinking like a mm. potato can only be grown this way and gosh there are i think there may be as many potato growing techniques as there are varieties of potatoes which like, is it's, so many <laughs> yeah and they're you know they vary in their productivity but it's really very dependent on the context right in which they're mm. growing so um I when when people ask me for gardening advice and they say something that I'm like mm, I'm not so sure about that I might give my two cents but at the same time I'm like try it maybe I'm wrong like maybe it'll mm-hmm. work but like, I've done all sorts of things that you know, people looked at me kind of um, sideways <laughs> and it often wasn't as much of a disaster as you would imagine so. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so nice, like that humility and just acknowledging that there's so many different ways to do things and we can have ways that work for us. Um, and someone else may discover another way <laughs> that that works for them. And yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. Absolutely. And Maxime, I heard that you were uh, just a, just in sort of a um, alongside that because we both of us are interested in um, plants that are multifunctional, I would say that are both Tasty, tasty being paramount for, for me at any rate, for edible plants. Uh, also just that can grow without, you know, too much babying because I generally have too much to grow to be babying them. Um, and, but also that are beautiful. I think that I, and maybe Maxine could respond to this, but, uh, for me, having a, a like a, a landscape which is sort of luscious for myself, the creatures I share it with, um, you know, a feast for more than just when I bring it indoors um, is always been important to me. And I think that you are uh, working on a or working with potato varieties that were um, pretty. Is that correct, Maxine? So, yeah, my dream was uh, to have a potato leaf, uh, a, p- a potato plant that was like purple leafed or blue leafed and then that beautiful big colored flower either like purple or like and i'd love like like purple leaf with blue flower or blue leaf with purple flower or something like that or double colored flowers a little white in there or so it's always been a dream of mine and i like kind to enjoy uh purple plants not like the trees and shrub mostly but like edible 
uh, plants that are not green, you know, because it gets a little boring at some point. So <laughs> I like all the purple things you can eat. And I said, like, well, a potato is a very beautiful plant uh, and we don't use it much in ornamental fashion, but it could be really bred um, for ornamental value. And the easy, well, what I figured out quick uh, going into breeding is that Tuber crops is very much more easy to uh, multiplicate once you have a stable variety. So you don't have to go through seven, eight or more generations. So if you find, if you're lucky and you find something like it's easily, well, it's way easier to propagate and to uh, spread and share with other people than other type of seed crop. So that is like a project that is like you can see it in the foreseeable future and i kind of i kind of succeeded here uh weirdly uh, so i got really nice purple leaf uh, potato uh but the flowers weren't so big and uh, it got diseased because we had some stem rot big issue at our farm so yeah and it kind of like was perennial at some level it's with stem the frost of the winter and it grew back from wow. the few potatoes that I left in the ground, just forgot about it. So we'll see next spring if I still have them, but uh, I really like, I'm shy of taking those potatoes in my new field because I don't want to bring the stem rot bacteria with it mm-hmm. and then contaminate my new field and then ruin all my future potato project and others because it doesn't affect only potato. So I would have to maybe like try to cross it with some other potato, maybe like a, and also the point was to get potatoes to eat from that plant, not just to make it pretty, but actually have like harvest sized potato, which that was a failure. They were super small, uh, and they were super late tuberizers, but still they were like tasty. So, and there was some amount of it, but nothing comparable to a real potato. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, that was a part failure and part success. So that tells you you're going towards the right direction. So you kind of need to find a potato with the leaf you want, maybe, and that's compatible. And that's a big issue with potato, too. It's a little unknown. So so maybe, yeah. So if they survive, if I still have a few of them, uh, that's a project that's going to be ongoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was one of those ones with long stolons then, so like underground rhizomes and uh, and little tiny dif- diffuse tubers. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like kind of the uh, it's kind of like a diploid type potato, but yeah. they didn't have like crazy stolons, no. But very like super long day tuberizer and right. uh, but re- but pretty frost resistant. So yeah. That's so, probably yeah. partly partly the tuber size too. I find that it's smaller vegetative material overwinters better under the snow. Um, Absolutely, sure. and it's not interesting as much uh, for like voles or gophers than let's say our beets or even onions and other type of perennials that most of them get eaten if there's a good snow coverage. If it's full of an ice sheet. <laughs> then they less they don't have access as much, but then the ice damages the plant. So it's always like this: we're very vulnerable to the weather and the season. It's, it's hard not to make like rash decisions also in breeding. 
because uh, you're like, well, this all died out, but maybe that was very an odd winter, like we're getting really odd weather since a few years, and it's it's like it's hard to find how this affects our projects and to keep it going. I think that's so it's like yeah, that's yeah. a trick, yeah. Because there's often, uh, especially you, ideally, if you're developing a cropping system to feed people, you want to have sufficient diversity in single variety crops. So like, say, a type of carrot with sufficient diversity to withstand a range of different um, conditions that's uh, sort of uh, appropriate for edible uses and storage um, facilities that are available, but also then you want a diversity within that crop type. So you want more than one kind of carrot that's going to be with like able to cope with a broader range of conditions. And then, then you want another redundancy built in, which is more than one type of thing that can provide those sorts of nutrients. Um, and that would, so that you can like cover an even broader spectrum of, uh, sort of like diverse conditions. So yeah, that's the thing that's really fascinated me um, is the sort of uh, poly crop selection um, within systems. But you also bring up this idea of the uh, sort of the aesthetic and the tuber and how we do selection it always makes me think of the fact that, for example, I think it's in Sweden they're um, breeding dahlia varieties. There was an institute that was breeding dahlia varieties for their edible tubers. So people think dahlia. They think, oh yeah, it's pretty, but <laughs> it also theoretically has an edible tuber. <laughs> I mean, taste like you'd have to start. I think selecting more for taste, also canna lily, for example, has potential for edibility. There is a canna edulis, which is a particular. I'm not sure if it's a full species or a subspecies. Um, that is was traditionally used and is used currently. Um, as an edible tuber, but common garden canna, which can produce a ton of tubers, is also has a potential for edibility. So again, that's another way of sort of re or building in redundancy into the system. Um, Telsing, before we, we move on too far from that, I wanted to come back to what you were saying about polycrop selection um, and sort of looking at your your plants from a system perspective can you elaborate a little bit on that and how that's informed your selection and sort of uh what type of landscape you're looking to grow oh absolutely yeah for sure um so i i think that pretty much from the beginning because i initially got into growing because i like to eat and i like to cook um and also uh i was feeding my family i was not selecting for let's say market garden varieties that would be super popular amongst the baby greens or or you know market if restaurants and stuff like that that wasn't my initial um, focus and I was always trying to figure out how am I going to feed my family kind of as a stand-in for the greater community and then later on how am I going to like contribute to the resiliency of the food system in the area. And so I never approached a, um, I never approached a selection project as a standalone plant. I always saw it in, uh, as one plant in amongst a series of plants that I grew. So it would have to have value as 
a plant that provided a particular set of nutrients and, and nourishing meals, um, but also would have to grow within cultivation within my other plants. Now, I, I never, I didn't typically grow multi plants together. That's a style of sometimes people use, let's say, they grow, I don't know, it's been a while since I've done this, but let's say radishes and parsnips. But I did, I did used to have my own cultural techniques where I would say plant one crop after another crop. And those two crops would have to have been selected so that that could, that could function. Not only that, but I grew in the landscape where there was a perennial periphery. Um, so the periphery of the, of the sort of annually more sort of like input, um, intensive, um, crops. Uh, was, it was ringed with like, you know, all kinds of like hedgerow type plants, which provided like, um, you know, vitamins and minerals. I like to call them. So fruits and um, greens that were, uh, either perennial or self-replicating or self-propagating. Um, and then in amongst that was then the annual, um, and for me, it was like really big. It wasn't like a garden like you would see in some of the houses. We're talking fields <laughs> in there as well. And I saw the uh, entire year as providing, having sort of different windows of opportunity for different plants. So in the spring, that's where like a very early spring, that kind of hunger gap time was when my perennial vegetables really shone. Things like patient's dock and the perennial leek that uh, Maxine was talking about and other onions and stuff like that. And oh, some of the roots that could overwinter in soil um, those were available and fresh and delicious and exciting because you're bored of some store food. And then you move on to more of the sort of like early berries and the summer crops. You get into a more of an annual intensive period of time. Then the height, hot summer is when there was like some of the more heat tolerant greens and what I used to like to call um, the, the harvesting or the weed harvesting. And that used to make up a big amount of the food that we actually ate in our household, especially when there was drought. And I, we experienced a couple severe droughts and I had no irrigation. Like I told me like, mm. the hard way. so like at wild amaranth and, and some other, um, uh, greens like that, which I, I like would allow to grow in row for crop failure, not out competing, just as a secondary potential harvest source was what we would eat a lot of. And then as you moved out of that very time, you're really back into heavy fruit and then a second reflush of all those perennial greens. And so there's this sort of like, like, I don't know, movement through space and time for these different crops and, and their windows and opportunities to select them. So they would grow well together in the mm -hmm. system. Yeah. I, yeah, that really resonates with me. Just, thinking about things as like this, I mean, the emergent property that comes out of all of these different things interacting, all the different factors, biotic and abiotic. And um, yeah, I, I don't know, there's something about that that just feels like such a, a nice homage to the way that nature naturally does selection, and making sure that there's something that's happening throughout every little window of the year. Um, Telsing, you've, uh, you've closed up shop with your seed business and are kind of taking on new projects, what's coming next for you? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, in terms of plants, that's an interesting question. I had, when I had initially closed up the uh, the seed company, it was a very bittersweet time. I had uh, passed on uh, my projects to those that were interested in them. Some people are doing, a, like, an amazing job with some of them uh, still, and I'm super grateful they're 
Heartbeat Farm has taken on the sweet potato, potato breeding, and I recommend everybody follow her and see what's happening there because it's really fun. Um, but I had partly thought, and maybe this is, you know, just burnout, that I was done. That's it. No more. But of course, that's not possible. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the pandemic hit, um, I think, immediately after it. So I was like, my, I think my company might have shut down in the spring of 2019 and so and we moved to the city from the farm and so um we moved in the fall late fall of 2019 and of course covid was uh um, winter 2020 and and i ended up working uh, with just food to do some projects with them um in ottawa uh and and then I ended up actually being the uh, head gardener at the Children's Garden in Ottawa, too, which was a very different scale for me. Uh, it was uh, given what I was used to working with by hand, even though it is a big garden, it felt like um, a great place to play because mm-hmm. it was small and I was like able to interact with within the constraints of COVID, uh, the community. There, so that was lots of fun. But uh, in terms of projects moving forward, my one of my daughters has... Um, has said she'd like to do a few reading projects with me. This is my 17-year-old daughter, so that's always really exciting. <laughs> and awesome. I know I'll continue to work with uh, the community, such as Maxime. We were, in fact, Maxime and I were talking about Chufa. I'm in Valencia, and Chufa, Cyperus Escalantis, also known as Tiger Nut, is a super, very exciting crop. Um um yeah so i'm sure i will continue to work with people in the community sort of in a in a much lighter capacity and also my with my daughter who would like to um try her hand at temperate dryland rice growing so mm. there you go there you go i want to do that too uh, tell sing i Great. So I have a I have a very like a, a natural inclination towards anything that's Asian because it's my favorite cuisine, uh, and I I used to uh, give uh, basically rare veggies uh, to uh, my favorite Japanese restaurant in town. So mm. we collaborated together, and were, they were like asking me. They were like, "Well, who are you? Like, where, <laughs> how did you come?" <laughs> <laughs> how do you come to get to those? It's like, well, just tell me what you want. And they were like, well, I want some uh, Sichuan pepper and some uh, udo. And they're like, well, see you in four years or or more. <laughs> I love that. And and actually, four years later, I was like, well, there you go. <laughs> so <laughs> that's it's, awesome. It's, it's, that, nice. Well, that, yeah, that's a very fun part. So I've not yet gone into soy and rice. Mm. but uh, definitely would be uh, super interested into doing that because it's the it's just the basis of everything that's transformed into what makes their cuisine like a uh, soy sauce uh, mirin uh, mm-hmm. uh, miso and all of that so that 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 would be my greatest joy and i see some people having success with that well i guess um to sort of wrap up here as as we come to the towards the end of an hour um i was wondering what would you love to see in the seed movement in canada um i think that perhaps more support for seed growers it's a it's a low profit business um in fact i would say that most uh, small scale agriculture is 
And if we really want to do things local, and there's a incredible benefit to doing that, because landscapes vary, um, that we have to look to what those people need. I mean, it's fine to want to encourage individual entrepreneurs, but like you end up with people having to do it part time and having a mm. job. And this is this is quite intensive work. Right. Um, or you have somebody like me who puts all the money they make back into what they're doing. So uh, and I could I, one of the reasons I actually shut down my business was because I was at a I was the, my CPOP uh, company was growing in popularity, um, but I was at a scale where I really needed to hire employees. But to hire employees, I'd have to pay myself nothing and tell my family I had to spend less time with them because I had to now do even more business work. And right. that seemed unfair to them. So I, I think that maybe more support. I certainly working in cooperatives like Turn Soul does is a is a great idea. It's a model for people who are looking to get into it to look into. Also, don't be afraid of trying new things and don't be afraid of plant breeding. If you have a little side project you want to do alongside. Maxi? So like on a consumer uh, point of view, I think people like in the, say, the next 10 to 20 years since we're always 10 20 years late than the u.s <laughs> we have a fair idea of what uh, might be more interesting and is the is basically uh the the the, the stop or the alt of the heirloom myth that uh, I, I i as i call it and as telsing is going to explain it better than me but usually like heirlooms are very uh not diverse uh, varieties and uh, they have certain aura because of the name heirloom but what they are actually is like breeding materials mm. that are very interesting but sometimes they're not uh, they're very prone to disease or they're not a uh, good acclimate they're not good for your climate or so there's their varieties there it's fun to have like very old varieties too i'm not saying throw them away like we have to keep them as breeding material but as we found out there's more interest like in the land race and the diverse populations uh, to have like a resilient uh act uh, like it's resiliency in growing our crops so like if everything fails a year it's a bummer if you have a diverse population, then a few plants uh, die out, then it's way more interesting. And then you get to select from that. So I think like seed saving in itself is going to be more and more uh, widely uh, practiced amongst people. And the fact that they are going to make their own little land races and population. So thank you so, so much for both joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, it's been wonderful to hear how you two have worked together, how um, you've followed these individual passion projects. And um, I'm excited to hear what comes next for you both. So thank you so much again. Seedheads is produced by the Beto Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security, a program of seed change, whose main office is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. To find episode transcripts and learn more about Seedwork in Canada, please visit seedsecurity.ca.